Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Have you tried out Book Riot Insiders? If not, your time is now. It's our resource specially designed for our fellow book nerds, and you can try it free for two weeks. There are different levels available, so you can decide which perks you want, from a monthly behind-the-scenes newsletter to exclusive podcasts and giveaways. And speaking of perks, we've got a new release index curated by resident philosopher reader Liberty Hardy, so you can see the most exciting new books coming in the next few months. Check it out and sign up for your 14-day free trial at insiders.bookriot.com. Welcome to For Real, a bi-weekly nonfiction books podcast that puts the spotlight on books that tell it like it is, or at least try to. We'll cover new releases, backlist finds, and more. For Real is a book riot podcast and is hosted by me, Kim Ugra, and fellow writer Alice Burton. We're recording this week's episode on Friday, August 16th. Hello, Alice. How are you? I am swell. Thrilled that it's Friday. How are you, Kim? I, too, am thrilled that it is Friday. I Yes, I'm glad it's the weekend. Uh, what is going on with you? Anything exciting? Um, I'm probably going to go to a book event that I will talk about later in the episode. Uh, tomorrow, we'll see if that actually happens because I like sleeping. And <laughs> I think that's about it. I made a very lofty reading goal for the end of the year. Like in mi- the middle of August, I was like, you know what? <laughs> I'm just going to make this goal now. And so that's stressing me out a little bit. But it's going to be fun. Oh, man. What's the goal? Can you say or? <laughs> yeah, I was just like talking around and I was like, what if it doesn't happen? Um, so I this at the beginning of this year, I was like, you know what? No pressure on yourself about accomplishing reading goals. Just like read when you feel like it. So my reading has gone way down, but I've been like trying to enjoy it more. Uh, so I've read 50 books this year so far. And I was but then I was like, you know what? It's August. What if you try to get to 100 for like the end of the year? So basically, right, doubling what I did in the first like seven and a half months or eight months and Mm -hmm. then uh, by the end of the year. So I don't know why I decided that, but now I really want (laughs) to do it. So we'll see. We'll see. That's very impressive. Good luck with that. I mean, it's impressive if I do it. Yes, that's true. That's true. I'm sure you will. Um, you had some follow-up from last week's episode, it looks like. Yes. I do. Okay. So I have two bits of follow-up. One is my fantastic friend, David. After I talked about Kia Brown's The Pretty One on life, pop culture, disability, and other reasons to fall in love with me, which is a fantastic book, he messaged me and was like, do you know about Exile and Pride? Disability, Queerness, and Liberation by Eli Clare. And I said no, and that I would mention it this episode in case anyone else was interested in kind of connected books to Kia Brown's book. Um, The other bit of follow-up is for you, the listener. We have a question for you. So we're talking about future episodes and potentially leaning more in the direction of one or the other of two themes. So one is, do you all prefer 
new books, hearing about upcoming releases, what's out now in terms of nonfiction, or a good theme. Do you like themed books? Do you want more books in a theme? If you could let us know, you can ping us on social media. I am at It's Alice Time, and Kim is at Kim the Dork. And just be like, new books, love them, or love a good theme, either one. That's that's uh, our main ask for yes. this week, maybe? Yes. Yeah, just just curious what people think of that. So awesome. Um, all right. So before we get started, we're going to do our first sponsor. Uh, so our first sponsor for this week's episode is Skin Deep, Journeys in the Divisive Science of Race by Gavin Evans, which was published by One World Publications. Uh, so Skin Deep is a book that tackles the debate that has been raging in internet, me- internet message boards and academic journals. Uh, no longer limited to the fringe, race-based studies of intelligence have been discussed by thinkers such as Sam Harris and Jordan Peterson. Uh, if these studies were true, they would provide an intellectual justification for inequality and discrimination, but clearly they're not. Uh, So in this book, he examines the latest research on how intelligence develops and lays out new discoveries in genetics, paleontology, archaeology, and anthropology to unearth the truth about our shared past. Skin Deep demolishes the pernicious myth that our race is our destiny and instead reveals what really makes us who we are. Uh, So this is uh, some myths about race have been widely accepted as fact, but actually the truth is completely different. So for example, uh, it's been believed that between 50 thousand and seventy thousand years ago a quote cognitive revolution led to the birth of culture in europe but in fact modern intelligence evolved tens of thousands of years earlier leading to the birth of culture in africa Um, and so in a place where we have the alt-right reviving race science this book takes an in-depth look at what facts quote unquote are being sprouted and gives scientific explanation as to why they are wrong so the book is skin deep by gavin evans published by one world publications Uh, And so uh, this week, we're going to start out uh, just a little bit differently than we normally do. Um, We're trying a new segment in the podcast, which I have creatively put in the show notes as nonfiction in the news. Uh, So it's just a couple of stories kind of in the world of nonfiction right now. And we're going to share them and then share some thoughts on them um, before we move into our regular new books and themed books segment. So I guess this is another thing you can let us know what you think, if this is interesting or not. Uh, And we will uh, take that into consideration while we're planning future episodes. So um, the first news story that I brought for us to talk about is uh, Barack Obama's summer reading list. Um, I always get super excited when he releases his reading list because he always just has such interesting stuff on them. Uh, and it's always a really great mix of fiction and nonfiction. Um, this summer's list seems to be a little heavier on fiction, actually, but he has three really great nonfiction books on it that I want to mention. Um The first one is The Shallows by Nicholas Carr, which is a book that talks about the Internet's impact on our brains, our lives, and our communities, um, which uh, Obama says, uh, despite being coming out a few years ago, are still worthy of reflection, which I think is – I have not read The Shallows, but I've heard really good things about it. Um, The second one is uh, Lab Girl by Hope Jaron, which is a memoir about a woman in science and – also about trees, which I have also heard amazing things about. Um, I started the audiobook and I liked it, but um, I think I might go to it in print. So, and then the third one is Made by Stephanie Land, which is a single mother's personal unflinching look at America's class divide um, and looks at the, the way some families have to get by. So um, those are three nonfiction books Barack Obama has read this summer. I'm curious, Alice, what you think of them. I think they all sound super interesting. I'm glad that he included nonfiction on his Mm -hmm. summer reading list, right? That's always like a a fantastic thing. Um, I I hadn't heard of The Shallows. I'd heard of Lab Girl and Maid, right? Because they're everywhere, Um, especially Mm 
I remember seeing made. But I feel like Lab Girl was on a lot of lists um, other yeah. than Barack Obama's. <laughs> Just like people being <laughs> like, here's some great books you should read. Um, I think I'm the most interested in Lab Girl. I haven't read any of these. But Lab Girl, um, I, I too would like to know of the profundity of trees. Yes, right? Um, yeah, I always – I love how um, – just diverse in like all sorts of different ways his reading lists are. And he always has at least a few nonfiction books on there, sometimes even actually more than fiction. Um, And they're just, it's fun to like see what an intellectual, famous, smart person is reading. So um, we'll link to uh, the Facebook post where he lists all of his um, books in the show notes. Um, And then the second uh, news story that we have is also, I guess, a political one, but um, it was one we are both excited about. Um, And it is that Workman Publishing is going to be publishing a uh, political biography of Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. It's going to be written by a freelance journalist named Prachi Gupta, who uh, formerly worked for Jezebel and Cosmopolitan. Um, And the book is called AOC, Fighter, Phenom, Changemaker. Um, and so, uh, the, um, press release that Workman put out talks about how they, um, jumped at the chance to rush the book to market because, um, AOC's story is more and more compelling and necessary every day, both because of the increasingly, um, nasty, uh, rhetoric that is being thrown her way by people in power in the United States, but also, um, the urgency of the problems that she's addressing, like climate change. And that's part of that, that is, uh, quoted from Sue, Bolton, which is Workman's publisher and editorial director. So um, there's going to be this, um, a representative Workman said the book will, quote, look and feel like an of the moment gift book with a bold cover, easy to read text and tons of vibrant photos in a small package. Um, Workman's also done some similar titles like one called Boss Babes and Strongest the New Pretty um, that have kind of the same, I think, maybe gift booky look to them. So uh, I think that Sounds kind of fun. And Alice, you um, suggested we talk about this because you were really excited about this biography. Yes? I am. I feel I normally stay away from political biographies and autobiographies, and especially for people as young as AOC, Mm -hmm. although I guess normally political biographies are not about people (laughs) as young as she is because (laughs) those people are not normally elected. But um, I think that I, I... have been very, of course, along with most people in the country, for better or for worse, right, like fascinated by her rise to political power. And I think that her backstory is amazing. I don't know a lot about it. I was watching, is it Knock Down the House, the documentary that's on Netflix? I think so, yeah. I kept, I always want to call it Bringing Down the House, which is that movie with Queen Latifah. So... <laughs> It's called it's called Knock Down the House. Okay, so not the Queen Latifah movie. Uh, I was watching Knock Down the House, and it's you know at the very beginning they're showing her doing her waitressing job, and it's just like is I don't know. It's just her story is amazing. So I when they're talking though about rushing the book to market, I was like, yeah, they are. It's coming out in November. I know that's so fast. Yeah, I was shocked, but also very excited. Yeah, I guess it depends how much – I guess it depends kind of what the book is, you know? Like if it's just kind of a – I don't know. I'm trying to think of what a good, like, comparison example might be, where if it's just kind of lots of little pieces of information, that that may be easier to pull together than if it has a really – like if it's having a narrative, that might be harder. I don't really know. Um, But, yeah, November is really, really fast. 
I mean, if they're talking about easy to read text and lots of photos, then it's like, great. I mean, first of all, that'll be fun in terms of a quick read, but also <laughs> it that's not going to take as long, right? You're, you're right. Yeah. As if they're uh, doing some kind of in-depth biography of her. Um, yeah. But yeah, the, the cover is fun. I'm really excited. Uh, I know we talked about this because I saw it in your nonfiction newsletter for Book Riot, True Story, mm -hmm. which everyone should subscribe to. <laughs> and uh, yeah, no, very, very jazzed. Yeah, cool. So those are a couple just like nonfiction news pieces. And um, yeah, we'll try that again next episode. We'll try something different and see what else we can share with you. And with that, our next sponsor for the episode, I am very excited about. It is Chase Darkness With Me by Billy Jensen. Journalist Billy Jensen spent 15 years investigating unsolved murders, fighting for the families of victims. And every story he wrote had one thing in common. They didn't have an ending. The killer was still out there. After the sudden death of a friend, who is the crime writer and author of All Be Gone in the Dark, Michelle McNamara, whose book, of course, we have talked about many times on this podcast, Billy got fed up uh, following a dark night, I believe metaphorically here. He came up with a plan, a plan to investigate past the point when the cops had given up, a plan to solve the murders himself. So what this book is, and I, I'm in the middle of it, I'm really enjoying it. I listened to his podcast that he does with uh, investigator Paul Holes. And which is which is called the Murder Squad, and it's really good. But so they are trying to solve true crimes, and that's what. So Billy Johnson went from being just like you know a journalist to actually going to crime scenes and working with families and trying to solve these crimes because he was so frustrated that there are so many cold cases out there, and there just aren't the resources for regular you know um, police units to solve them. So Chase Darkness with me is basically his story and how he got into this. And then, you know, he talks, of course, about working with Michelle McNamara. Um, he sort of helped, like, finish up her book after she passed away. And um, his his event is the book event I am trying to attend tomorrow, which uh, is in Naperville, Illinois, which is the main reason I'm like, I don't know if I'll get out there because it's a little far from Chicago. But anyway, point being, very excited about this. You should pick it up. Chase Darkness with me by Billy Jensen. Interesting. I didn't realize he was um, one of the people who helped finish I'll Be Gone in the Dark. That's really cool. I mean, not cool that he had to do that, but you know what I mean, right? I get it for sure. Yeah. Interesting though. Good. I'm excited about that sponsor since it's one we know a lot about and can share. So, all right. So with that, we will shift into our uh, normal first segment, which is this week, our second segment. This out of order thing has got me a little bit discombobulated, but we will continue uh, with new books. So that is books that are coming out this week within the last couple of weeks, new, something uh, exciting and new and interesting that we can talk about. And so Alice, uh, you are up first for this one. Yeah, I'm really interested in this one. It's a little outside what I normally go towards. Um, I've been staying away from kind of sadder books, but uh, this story is really compelling. And it is Breaking the Ocean, a memoir of race, rebellion, and reconciliation by Anahid Dashtgard. So Anahid Dashtgard, she was born into this um, mixed race family in 1970s Iran. Her mother was white. Her father was Iranian. So then um, when she was seven years old, the 1979 Islamic Revolution happened. So, and her father had basically like started the Tehran stock exchange or and so he was seen as being very connected to the Shah so he and his family had to get out of the country so they went to Canada 
And once there, you know, she's like grown up, like her formative, like early childhood was spent in Iran. And then she's suddenly in like this smaller town in Canada and everyone's white. And she basically has this horrible time in school. Like it's so frustrating reading about it because you're like, what are the teachers doing? Why are children terrible? Which I mean, I think that anyone who was, well, everyone was a child at one point. And so everyone asks that question of their fellow children. Why are you terrible? Anyway, so it talks about that and then her time in college and how she basically um, finds this new identity for herself as this um, driven young woman who finds strength through political activism and eventually becomes a leader in the anti-corporate globalization movement of the late 1990s but after 9-11 she has this trauma from being you know bullied and ostracized as a as a child and through high school um this is brought back up and so she basically checks out of her life and starts going on this kind of like healing journey there's a lot of steps to this book it's really interesting um again a little bit challenging but i wouldn't say like too challenging in terms of like emotional impact uh like i was again i can't handle a lot of sad things right now but i am still uh have been really riveted by it so uh it, they're the publisher sort of tagline is saying that it offers this unique perspective on how racism and systemic discrimination result in emotional scarring and ongoing ptsd and is a wake-up call to acknowledge our differences offering new possibilities for healing and understanding, which is just so uplifting in the end. And like, I just, I don't know, I really like this book. Anyway, it is again, Breaking the Ocean, a memoir of race, rebellion, and reconciliation by Anahid Dashgard. Interesting. That sounds really good. Yeah. And definitely like kind of outside your wheelhouse, but it's fun to find books that are a surprise or that you know what I mean? Like that's one of the things I like about nonfiction is that you can often like find a book that is about something you didn't think you were interested or you didn't know that you were interested in. And then if the writing is good and the story is strong, you can become interested and learn about this thing that you didn't know about. So that's really neat. Um, all right. So my uh, first book is um, I feel like maybe this is like the most buzzy book of August, at least from like the one, the kind of chatter I've seen. And that is called The Yellow House, a memoir by Sarah M. Broom. And it came out August 13th from Grove Press. Uh, And so this is a memoir about the pull of home and family set in a shotgun house in New Orleans East. So um, the whole premise of the book is uh, that it is telling stories connected to this yellow house that is in a neighborhood, uh, East New Orleans or New Orleans East. Um, And the house, it was purchased by Sarah Broom's mother, Ivory May, uh, in 1961. Um, And at the time, New Orleans East was this very promising neighborhood. It was home to a NASA plant. And so there were a lot of good paying jobs for people in that area. Um, And people were super optimistic that this was kind of an up and coming area and that it was going to grow. And that kind of has turned out not to be true. Um, So uh, every May when she bought the house, she was a widow and she then uh, remarried to Sarah's father um, and eventually had a total of 12 kids in the house. So between her different, uh, her first husband and her second husband, they had 12 children. Uh, Sarah is the baby of this whole entire family. So she has these 11 older brothers and sisters. And so the book is about um, their family growing up in this house. And so it um, starts kind of back before their family moves into the yellow house with kind of the great-grandparents and grandparents, and then to Ivory May, and then to moving into the house. Um, 
And then from there, uh, shortly after Sarah is born, six months after Sarah was born, uh, Simon, her, her father, um, I remain seventh, second husband died. And so then um, the book jacket says, uh, the yellow house became Ivory May's 13th and most unruly child. So that's about how this house kind of is a, a place of safety for this family, but also becomes something that becomes very hard for them to manage and very um, kind of an albatross almost. And so it opens with, um, and then because it's in New Orleans, the house eventually is destroyed by Hurricane Katrina. And so that is a huge part of the story, too, is about this this loss that the family experiences of their family home and everything that goes with that. So um, it's about family, place, and stories contained in a single home. Um, and I, uh, the writing is just beautiful. It's so beautiful. Um, as you're reading, it's just – it's not – a page turner exactly, but you just kind of want to sink into it and like be in the place with this family and, and hearing their stories. And I love how focused and centered it is around this one particular story, but this one particular story really illustrates a lot of other stories in kind of the history of the United States and this community. So uh, it's very, very good. I'm very interested in finishing it. Uh, so that is The Yellow House, a memoir by Sarah M. Broom. Not to get stuck on covers, but the cover for that is really good. So good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But also an important book. <laughs> my <laughs> my <laughs> next book is Dead Blondes and Bad Mothers, Monstrosity, Patriarchy, and the Fear of Female Power by Sadie Doyle. It's at August 13th from Melville House. I am just really jazzed about this book because I feel like it's saying a lot of things in an interesting way that are important to be said. So she's essentially talking about how women have been portrayed throughout recorded history as monsters and says that uh, a monster, you you basically don't just, you're not disgusted only by a monster or like made angry by it, but you are like, you fear monsters. So it's talking about the fear that men have about women, right? And that it is serious and it kills women every day. So um, I'm actually just like looking at, my quotes right now because I took I was I've highlighted so much of this book and (laughs) it's just okay she goes through popular culture as well as um actual history talking about she starts near the beginning talking about horror movies and why um women especially are kind of the well so she talks about the exorcist right and she's like before this um exorcisms weren't done very much by the church they were sort of this weird archaic thing after that there were like after the movie the exorcist came out like thousands of exorcisms have been performed and they're mostly done on women and women are mostly like young women like adolescent aged girls which she talks about this whole thing about um how this idea of exorcism and the way that that um, the main character, whose name I do not remember, from The Exorcist, but the way that she changes after she is possessed is really similar to girls going through puberty and how they change. And not similar in, you know, like the like demonic ways, but in terms of like physical changes happening and like girls going from sort of really indulged to suddenly... Um, kind of vilified by society automatically, like once you reach a certain point. And then, so she talks about that. She talks about Carrie, women in horror movies, like the girl who like survives the horror movie, why women have suddenly become big 
slasher film fans, which she then ties into true crime and how that's really popular. There's just like, she goes into so many things, which I'm just like, yes, you're like in it now. So this also includes like biblical Lilith, Dracula's Lucy Westenra, which if you are familiar with Dracula, Lucy's kind of like the throwaway one. Which it's like, why is that interesting? And then she even talks about the T-Rex in Jurassic Park. Because if you will remember, <laughs> all the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park are female until some of them change because of the frog DNA. But that's not important. So, oh, and also the craft. Which I feel like the craft is getting referenced a lot in nonfiction books about feminism lately. And I'm... True. I'm really interested in that. Um, she also talks about some history. She talks about Ed Gein's uh, Mother Augusta, the uh, exorcism casualty Annalisa uh, Mikkel, who uh, starved herself to death in order to quell her demons, and then Mary Shelley. So if you're kind of interested in, like, feminism and feminist theory, but, like, said in, in a really um, – relatable way that you can get into because she links it so much to like history and pop culture uh i think that this is an awesome book for that again it is dead blondes and bad mothers monstrosity patriarchy and the fear of female power by sadie doyle that sounds good i love that subtitle too like that's just the whole title really is just it's so good yeah yeah, that sounds really awesome. And I love all of the like pop culture you mentioned and that that just sounds great. Ah, good, good pick. All right. Um, so my uh, last pick is, uh, I don't really know how to preface it, so we'll just get into it. So it is called uh, The Mosquito, A Human History of Our Deadliest Predator by Timothy C. Wingard. Uh, and this is a work of narrative nonfiction that looks at how Across the history of humankind, the mosquito has been the single most powerful force in determining humanity's fate. Dun, dun, dun. Um, so it looks at like how what the mosquito has done to us as humans and how mosquitoes are terrifying and have basically murdered half of all of the humans who have ever lived. Um, that's in the introduction. He says that based on a bunch of different um, science, I don't remember exactly what, but that an estimated 52 billion of the 108 billion people who have ever lived on earth were killed by mosquitoes. Mosquitoes are far and away the thing that has killed the most humans beyond any other type of predator. And that's because they carry diseases that wipe out humans very quickly. So um, this whole book just looks at like the history of humans and how mosquitoes have affected basically everything. Um, it just is so interesting. Um, one of the things I super like about it is that uh, when he is talking about mosquitoes, he always calls them she uh, because it's female mosquitoes who actually bite you. And so like, in this weird way, talking about, like, she kills people and all of that. Like, I don't know. Like, there's just something very, like, wah-ha-ha-ha-ha about it, which is maybe a terrible thing to say, but that's fine. Um, it is it is so interesting, this book. It's so it's so good. Um, I want to just read three of the ch- – so all of the chapter titles are amazing, but there are three that I particularly love that will give you a sense of, like, whether this book is for you or not. Uh, the first one I want is called The Seasoning Mosquito or The Seasoning Mosquito Landscapes Mythology and the Seeds of America. Uh, one is called Unalienable Bites, the American Revolution. Another one is Sinister Angels of Our Nature, the American Civil War. Uh, which <laughs> those made me laugh so much. That's pretty good. Right? Those are so good. Um, so like 
I have always wanted, like, I just, I feel like I need to read, like, sort of, like, history of the world book or, like, history of humans. But I just, like, I don't know, couldn't find one that I was really interested in until this one. Because I just, this idea that, like, mosquitoes have basically, like, dictated or affected every major human uh, decision in ever, I just, I just find that really fascinating to me because it's a thing that, like, nobody would ever really truly admit is shaping human history. But, like, all of these huge wars and um, conquerings and everything are affected by mosquitoes because they carry diseases that kill us. Um, and then uh, Glenn Weldon, who's one of the co-hosts of Pop Culture Happy Hour, which is one of my favorite pop culture podcasts, uh, mentioned this book during one of their segments. So, uh, few weeks or a few months ago now, I think, um, which also is one of the reasons I was excited about it because he was very enthused about it too. So um, yeah, History of Humans via Mosquitoes, uh, The Mosquito, A Human History of Our Deadliest Predator by Timothy C. Weingard. I feel like I'm usually suspicious of micro histories, but because, mm-hmm. you know, it's always like the most important blah, 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 and then it's not. But this actually seems like it has a good case for it, given that mosquitoes suck. Um, oh, that's kind of a yeah. pun. Anyway, uh, <laughs> did I tell you that my grandmother, no, my great aunt got yellow fever, which is spread by mosquitoes and almost died. No. But my great grandmother no. was like, this, this child shall not die. Which that's the story that was told to me. <laughs> and then she lived. <laughs> that's the whole, st- this whole story. <laughs> Well, I think that this story about mosquitoes is a little more in-depth than that one, but good story. Good story. That's fair. So. <laughs> All right. So um, switching gears into our second segment, or our third segment now? Oh, my gosh. I'm so discombobulated. All right. Um, our time, our topical segment. Uh, this week, we thought we would do uh, books about cults, uh, which this was your suggestion, Alice. So I'm wondering like, why you were excited to do a segment on books about cults. Everyone loves hearing about cults, Kim. It's not it's not just me. <laughs> that was, was there my... anything in Was yeah. there anything in particular? Yeah, I had recently picked up one of the books that I'm going to talk about. So I was like, "Oh, hey, that's right. Books about cults." It was not like an in-depth reasoning. Uh, it was the book was right in front of me and I was like, "Oh, great, let's do that." But I do legitimately think that it's very interesting and we're not we're like scratching the surface we could even do cults part two at some point but um i think that i don't know i think we've got some good picks so i'm excited yeah when i i was trying to kind of i thought i yeah when i was doing research for this one there are a lot of books about cults because there are a lot of cults that you could choose from so we could definitely bring this one back um i for both of mine i'm doing uh, books that are a little bit older um and that maybe are like not quite straight down the lane of cults. There are maybe like cult adjacent, but that's fine. Um, so the first one is called Under the Banner of Heaven, A Story of Violent Faith by John Krakauer. Um, and so this is a book that kind of has two main narratives. Um, the first is the true crime part of it, which is uh, the story of brothers Ron and Dan Lafferty, who in July of 1984 broke into the home of their brother, Alan, and murdered his wife and his infant daughter. Um, and so after they were caught, both of the brothers maintained that they were justified in the killing because they'd received a commandment from God to commit the murder. Um, and they were both members of a kind of a fundamentalist Mormon side um group kind of off of the main Mormon church. And so their um, faith uh, uh, kind of sub 
I don't know what the word I'm looking for is uh, an offshoot of Mormonism is there was their excuse for committing these murders. And so the book by John Krakauer tries to understand this crime by looking at the history of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints um, and kind of the history of Mormonism tied to this and then kind of adjacent to this murder. So it's a history of the church that connects um, the history of the Mormon church with more modern doctrine, as well as all of kind of the splinter and side groups and um, polygamous sects and all of that, and tries to really like get into what that means and how those things happen. Um, and so because it's a true crime book, there is um, this murder on the side, a murder on the side. There's this murder that's a, a kind of a, a parallel story. Um I read this book uh, quite a while ago now, and I remember reading it on a bus um, as I was getting between um, buildings at the campus I was on and hoping that nobody was looking over my shoulder while I was reading it because the murder parts are really grisly. Um, They're not um, sensationalized, but they're just very um, descriptive and very precise. Um, and so it, that, that part, if you are not a grisly true crime person, I don't think that this is one you would necessarily want because it's pretty, um, it's pretty, pretty grisly in parts, but it is a page turner and Krakauer is a super solid journalist. And so I have everything I remember learning about the Mormon church and kind of the whole history of that and how it had splintered into these different, more fundamentalist, um, groups I just thought was so interesting. And it was a really nice comprehensive history of that, um, that I think got at a lot of the issues and concerns and ways that that um, can be kind of perverted into some in some really um, upsetting ways. So uh, that it's, I think, a true crime classic that I think I recommend and fits generally into our idea of books about cults. So that is uh, Under the Banner of Heaven, A Story of Violent Faith by John Krakauer. I've seen that book so many times and Mm -hmm. been like, I should read a John Krakauer book. I haven't read any of them. And he's done like some really, really famous books that we have talked about before. (laughs) He's really, he's very good. His journalism, I never, um, this one, um, he wrote it. And and then after the hardcover came out, the Mormon church kind of came up with some, they came back with a bunch of criticisms of the book. And so then in the paperback version that I have, he actually goes through all of those criticisms and kind of explains his reporting and what he learned and all of that stuff. So like, you just you just like know what he's doing is solid, um, which I always appreciate in good reported nonfiction. So, um, yeah. And as our resident journalist, I of course always respect <laughs> by proxy the people that you respect in the field of journalism. So that is great. Um, my first cultish pick is actually the book that I had picked up and had in front of me when we were talking about doing a segment on cults. And it is The Road to Jonestown, Jim Jones and the People's Temple by Jeff Gwynn. This was a 2018 Edgar Award finalist for, and I love this category, Best Fact Crime. That's which so I good. was like, That's fact so crime? <laughs> I know, I know. Um, so it's they start from before Jim Jones was born, right? They start with his parents, which he had like, as most, I think, people who become kind of like psychopaths are, he had a really messed up childhood. Um, his mother was like seemingly a compulsive liar and his his father had uh, suffered some kind of attack in, I think it was some kind of like gas attack in the war. And so he was disabled and like living at home and not able to do a lot. Well, obviously living at home, but like, you know, staying at home and not able to do a lot. He couldn't go out and work. And like they were uh, relying on his family to help them living in like Indiana. 
And Jim Jones grew up around this with his mother, who, again, was like this fabulous. And she was telling him that he was she knew he was born to do like amazing things. He was going to be this amazing person. And then he kind of takes that and runs with it in like the most negative direction possible. So in the 1950s, he starts preaching. He's like, I'm going to be a preacher. And he's, it's kind of like this blend of the gospel and then also Marxism because in college he and his friends were like, well, clearly, you know, it's supposed to be like a, like a Christian communism, which I'm not actually arguing with that. But it's more, again, the direction that he took it. So his congregation was racially mixed, which, like, in the 1950s was a big deal. And he was a leader in the early civil rights movement. He moved his church, which was called People's Temple, to Northern California. Um, He got involved in electoral politics. He became this, like, prominent Bay Area leader, which actually I just finished reading American Heiress uh, about Patty Hearst. And he was part of what was going on with Patty Hearst. Like he volunteered when she, the people who kidnapped her were like, you have to do a food drive. He offered along with his congregants to like help lead the food drive. And I was like, oh my gosh, no, it's Jim Jones. But then he disappeared from the narrative, obviously. So this goes from, again, his like pre being born to, um, his in, he goes through his entire life. So from his life as a minister, uh, starting out to then the move to California, and then, of course, getting this settlement in the jungles of Guyana in South America and what was happening leading up to November 1978 when more than 900 people died um, as a result of his direct actions. So it's like it's a really in-depth book, and I think it's uh, it's really sort of, I use the word compelling frequently, but only because I pick compelling books for this podcast. It is a compellingly written book. And despite its, uh, I would say, kind of length, I think it's almost 500 pages. But Jonestown is fascinating and tragic and a lot of varied adjectives. And um, if you are interested in reading more, I think that this is an excellent pick for that. So again, that is The Road to Jonestown, Jim Jones and the People's Temple by Jeff Grin. Excellent. Great pick. Um, so my second pick is, um, it's not explicitly about cults, but it is about a country that has, I think, a cult-like um, thinking or a cult-like um, attitude towards its leader. So the book is uh, called Without You, There Is No Us, My Time with the Sons of North Korea's Elite by Suki Kim. Uh, and this is a memoir that um, Suki Kim wrote after being um, a teacher in North Korea. So she is a native of South Korea who emigrated to the United States when she was 13, um, but she visited North Korea several times um, before she uh, is hired to teach English at Pyongyang University of Science and Technology in 2011. Um, At the time, PUST was the only operating university in the country. All other college students were doing forced labor. Um, And so she had to, in order to get this job to go and like kind of see what the country was about, she had to pose as a Christian missionary and then hide all of the like notes and stuff that she was taking while she was there um, to... um, to, uh, to tie the fact that she was a journalist until so she spent six months teaching there, um, building relationships with these students and like trying to both like understand North Korean culture, but also like give these young men a glimpse of the world outside of North Korea. And so like 
the book is all kind of about that experience. But like the thing that struck me as I was reading it is just like how brainwashed all of these people are. They just have no, all of the students she was teaching were, they just kind of had no concept of anything outside of their own experiences because no one had ever given that to them. And so, um, you know, she talks about how like often like they will, they would just, just lie to her. Um, but it wasn't malicious lying. It just kind of was like what they did because that's kind of all they knew how to do. Uh, and it's just such a really fascinating peek into some really, uh, well, like the, the best and most entitled people inside North Korea and what they are taught, um, and how they are taught to operate and look at the world, um, through this kind of secret, uh, investigative memoir that she writes after being a teacher and kind of posing there. Um, and it is, it is fascinating. And I think just a, a glimpse at how people who don't object to the system are raised to think and how they do think. Um, so that is, without you, there is no us. My time with the sons of North Korea's elite by Suki Kim. I think that definitely fits within this kind of segment. That's it's at the very least, as you were saying, like cult like thinking. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So my last pick is Underground, The Tokyo Gas Attack and the Japanese Psyche by Haruki Murakami. So Murakami wrote nonfiction, which hmm. I I didn't know. I was at the library browsing their cult section, as you do, and <laughs> I found this. So this is about Om Shinrikyo, which is the Japanese doomsday cult founded by Shoko Asahara in 1984. Um Robert J. Lifton, who's an author, believes that Asahara, quote, interpreted the Tibetan Buddhist concept of foa in order to claim that by killing someone, contrary to the group's aims, they were preventing them from accumulating bad karma and thus saving them, uh, which is obviously a load of malarkey. So what they did was they carried out this deadly Tokyo subway sarin attack in 1995 that killed 13 people, severely injured 50, some of whom later died, and caused temporary vision problems for nearly a thousand others. The group never confessed. They claimed that those who carried out attacks did so secretly without being known to uh, other executives and ordinary believers, which is also apparently a load of malarkey. So sarin is this, um, it's a, it's listed as a weapon of mass destruction. It's a extremely toxic compound. It's colorless and odorless, and exposure is lethal even at very low concentrations. It was outlawed by the Chemical Weapons Convention, which is a thing, in 1997. So what Murakami does in this book is he interviewed tons of people and then um, put their interview... He tries to stay out of it. He says he was very inspired by Stud Turk Studs Turkle's um, working and just tries to have the people themselves sort of tell their stories. And a lot of them, it's interesting because they'll intersect. Like, someone will be like, I saw this man and he did this and then he'll have interviewed the man and he'll, like, kind of distantly speak of this woman who he, like, never met. And um, just talk. they talk about how they were the victims of this attack were affected in such various ways and um, sort of talking about the cult itself, which I don't know. I thought it was, it's really interesting and different and not quite, I didn't know what to expect when I picked it up, but I feel like Murakami as always is trying something really interesting. And he talks about it though, like the attack in a way, like, of course, you know what this is because the book was published in Japan and then translated, um, for the English audience, I did not. So uh, hence me giving this background info for you. But again, I think that it's um, I think it's really worth picking up and about a uh, at least 
to me, a, a little known event as someone who um, was 10 in 1995, not really up on my international news. So again, that is Underground, the Tokyo Gas Attack and the Japanese Psyche by Haruki Murakami. Excellent. I It was funny when you started talking about this when you were like browsing the library's cult section because I did the same thing. Um, I kind of <laughs> wandered around and I was like, where are the cult books? And I looked through them and I saw this one. Um, and so I'm glad you talked about it because it sounds fascinating. Like, and I love the um, like the Studs Terkel um, approach to that. That's super interesting to me. So very cool. Um, all right. So with that, we will shift gears into our last segment where we're going to quick talk about the books that we are reading right now. Um, and I actually, I'm going to talk about a book that I finished uh, just before uh, this podcast um, that I maybe was going to talk about in the cult section, but then I thought talking about it in the cult section made a little bit light of the topic and I didn't want to do that. So uh, the book is called Rising Out of Hatred, The Awakening of a Former White Nationalist. And it's by Eli Saslow, who's a Washington Post reporter that I really, um, he's a great writer. Um, so this book came out in 2008. 18, the paperback's going to be out in September, uh, and it is a book. Uh, the main per, uh, the main um, person at the center of the story is Derek Black, who is a young man who grew up at the epicenter of white nationalism. Um, his father was um, the founder of Stormfront, which is the largest racist community on the internet. Um, Derek Black's godfather is David Duke, who is the Grand Wizard of the KKK. Um, and Derek was being groomed to be the kind of next leader of the white nationalist movement in the United States. Um, then he went to college to this very hippie college in Florida, um, where he continued to um, do a radio broadcast for this white nationalist radio network while also going to college in this super hippie place in Florida. And so he had this double life until eventually a classmate figured out who he was and kind of exposed him on the student listserv. And then it became this very complicated um, moment on campus about what they should do about it. Should they ostracize him? Should they try and convert him? Should they, like, how should the campus react to him being there? Um, and so the whole book is about how that happened and how Derek eventually through kind of the outreach and connection to some other students, um, a, a couple of students who invited him to sh weekly Shabbat dinners, um, yeah, uh, and uh, a, a girl who reached out and, and they developed a relationship together, how they eventually helped him move beyond his white nationalist and white supremacist belief to actually um, kind of be speaking out against those beliefs and how they have become a part of our national political discourse. So um, it is uh, it is fascinating. It was hard to read and I have really like complicated feelings about it because like I don't I don't know what the answer is about what how someone reforms or comes back from from kind of the like deep harm that his rhetoric and his actions and his um his, the language that Derek helped uh, the white nationalist movement develop and and test and grow how one like comes to how one how one uh, comes back from that or how you how you make amends for something like that but it is really fascinating to kind of read that story and think about what are the ways that we should deal with that and, and the importance of talking and conversation and of trying to engage people in a way, even when you like very much disagree with everything they stand for. So um, I just think it's really good. It's beautifully written. Eli Sasso is a wonderful reporter and he does a lot of really good work there. So um, interesting book, uh, Rising Out of Hatred, The Awakening of a Former White Nationalist by Eli Sasso. Well, thanks for uh, being the one to read that. Kim. I mean, it, it sounds very good, but as you were saying, it, was, it sounds hard. It's hard, yeah. 
Um, my I just finished American Heiress, the audiobook, which again I am I'm delving into the world of audiobooks. It's a new thing for me. Uh so I also checked out Unbroken, a World War II story of survival, resilience, and redemption by Laura Hillenbrand. Um, I am not a big World War II person, so I'm I think I'm like an hour and a half to two hours into this, and they're talking a lot about B-24 bombers. <laughs> I'm mm-hmm. just like Okay, but I think that you know eventually they're they're starting to talk about sharks, so that that's more interesting. It is. I'm I'm actually this is a, it's a hard audiobook in parts. Like it is very um, the experience that they go through is horrifying. So, uh, but I, I I listen to it on audio too. So yeah, this is this is good to know for the future. I don't actually know that much in terms of details of what I, I just know it involves sharks. Mm-hmm. That's all I know. Yes. Um, and with that <laughs> sharky ending um, you can find us on social media again please let us know if you would like more theme more new books what's your favorite um, tag me at it's Alice time and Kim at Kim the dork and if you feel so inclined please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts that helps people find us more easily and while you're there you can subscribe so that you get new episodes the very minute that they come out uh, and so with that I am Kim Ugra and I'm Alice Burton And we thank you for listening.